Hey everybody, it's me, Evgeny. Before we start today's interview, I want to let you know about an event later this year, which, if you're into this podcast, will be right up your alley. It's called Data Center World, and it's scheduled for August 16th in Orlando, Florida. Data Center World is the leading conference and expo for data center and IT infrastructure professionals. It's the only industry event that delivers exclusive state-of-the-data-center research findings, in-depth workshops, 50-plus conference sessions, keynotes from industry luminaries, the largest offering of data center technology solutions, and unlimited networking opportunities. Find out more about the event and register at www.datacenterworld.com. That's www.datacenterworld.com. Hope to see you there. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Data Center Podcast. This is Evgeny, Editor-in-Chief of Data Center Knowledge. Today, we're lucky to have with us Charlie Boyle. He's a VP at NVIDIA. Um, there, he runs the DGX Systems Unit. That unit uh, makes and sells NVIDIA supercomputers for AI. Lots of really cool stuff we're going to talk about today. Charlie, thank you so much for, talk for uh, talking to us today. Thanks, Evan. Glad to be here. So let's uh, let's give our listeners a bit of your background. Uh, you came to NVIDIA five years ago uh, from some LinkedIn investigation that I've done after uh, six years at Oracle. Um, and you ended up at Oracle because Oracle acquired Sun Microsystems, your previous employer, is that correct? Yep. Yeah, I've been in data center infrastructure, servers, data center system management um, for... Uh, a lot of years at this point. I don't want to mm -hmm. date myself too much, but uh, before Sun, uh, I was running uh, service provider data centers and doing engineering and R&D for them, uh, and then started doing products at Sun, which transitioned over to Oracle. And then obviously uh, with NVIDIA, we had a great opportunity to build uh, you know, AI systems from the ground up as a complete solution. And uh, that's really uh, what, what I like to do is, you know, deliver a full solution to a user that's going to you mm -hmm. know, solve their problems and in a way that's different from what they've got today. Yeah. And so let's rewind a little bit. How did you end up at Sun? Uh, so back in my service provider days, as we were you know, running uh, managed, you know, what you would call managed services today uh, for web hosting, uh, ran, you know, data centers with thousands of servers worldwide. And uh, my data center platform was kind of split between um, Sun and Solaris boxes. And uh, at the time, this will date me a little bit, uh, Windows and T-boxes. So I knew a, a lot of folks at Sun because we you know, hosted thousands of Sun servers and had some of the biggest brands on the internet uh, at the time uh, you know, running Sun and Solaris servers. And I'd moved out to California for uh, a startup to, to do something uh, interesting in the voice data center space. And then um, as I was at a, a joint Sun event, they were uh, promoting a, a new platform, a, a data center management platform, if you will, back in the day. And this would have been 2002. Uh, that sounded really interesting and revolutionary. Uh, and I knew enough people at Sun. I phoned up a few people and said, you know, hey, that thing that this engineering VP just announced, uh, I don't know him, but I'm interested in it. Do any of my friends uh, know this guy? And uh, some of my good friends at Sun are like, oh yeah, you know, I, I know him well. I'm, the, I'm his marketing counterpart. I'm his product counterpart. Uh, so we made introductions and uh, joined Sun to work on uh, converged data center platform software at the time and uh, had a, a great career there doing that, doing system management virtualization. Um, and then also eventually uh, running the Solaris product uh, at Sun that, you know, 
at the time was you know widely used across the in uh, the entire mm-hmm. high end um, Unix space. And that so that was the so the 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 product they were talking about that made you curious about joining Sun was the the converged. Uh, yeah, at at the time, it's a product that probably nobody currently has ever heard of. It was called N1 was the initiative. And we had a couple acquisitions. We learned a lot, you know, back in the day, uh, it was a grand vision of a single product managing everything in the data center from servers, network storage, and an easy control plane. Uh, I think it was a little early in its time back in the early 2000s. You know, that's a really tough uh, you know, problem to crack, but we learned a lot along the way from our customers and eventually spun out a number of, um, smaller scope products that really helped customers. And then, uh, you know, leading to a bunch of, um, data center management setups, uh, including, you know, virtualized systems and, uh, you know, at the time, you know, how to use the built-in virtualization inside of the Solaris operating system better uh, across the data center. So, so, so similar in spirit to well, what actual converged systems that came after, that became hot and then and then kind of morphed into hyperconverged, um, but yeah. perhaps a bit early for. Yeah, that that was a bit early, but a lot of that foundation became the converged systems that uh, we were working on at Oracle. So, you know, things like Exadata, Exalogic, the uh, the private cloud system that they had, you know, all all of those, you know were hyper-converged systems, but just in a much larger form factor. Those were rack-level designs, uh, but to solve a very specific customer problem. Like, you're, you're not the first person that, um, you know, I interview and then I start researching them and it turns out they kind of came through, came up through Sun, um, ended up in Oracle. And so I like to ask this question, uh, how did things change at work once Oracle took over Sun? How did things change for you? Uh, it, so, you know, of, of any acquisition, there were positives and negatives. You know, I, I really appreciated Oracle's, you know, sales culture that, you know, they, they want to win. They were very aggressive, you know, that lots has been written of the, you know, kind of sun going down in the, uh, the, the final years, but, uh, you know, Oracle really had a passion for, you know, getting things out to their customers and, you know, and really monetizing things well. They have the business now, end of things down. It, you know, as an Oracle customer, you know, you know, lots of times people say they monetize things a little too well, but <laughs> at, the, at the same time, you know, it was, it was a very, you know, strong culture and, uh, but, you know, has a very, you know, they had a very strong engineering presence as well. You know, lots of, you know, bits and pieces of things, you know, the, that used to be Sun got assimilated into Oracle. I actually moved when I joined, I didn't join the hardware division at, at Oracle because I was responsible for Solaris virtualization and system management. So I joined the software team, which was a core part of Oracle. So, you know, to me, it was just like, okay, you know, I'm just a part of core Oracle now. And, um, you know, it was, it was a positive experience in, in a lot of ways. And of course, you know, there's a lot about, you know, culture and other things It you know, it fit fine for me. Some, some people didn't like it as much, but, you know, for me, it was fine. And and you led uh, development of conversion infrastructure products at Oracle. You're now running AI infrastructure business at NVIDIA. How, maybe in general terms, this may, may sound like a weird question to you, but do your best. How, how is the world of AI infrastructure, that business, that ecosystem different from the world of conversion infrastructure, maybe the more traditional hardware world? Well, you know, at, at the base, they share a lot of the same fundamental things. I mean, the reason that people 
you know, light converged infrastructure is from whatever partner you're buying it from, whether it's converged storage or a converged compute solution, the you know, the value to the end user is it's as easy as possible to get the most benefit out of it. You don't spend a lot of time researching hardware, setting things up, updating things. You know, the vendors done all that work for you. Um, and you know, when we started DGX, and I can't say that I started DGX, the you know, the product was under development before I joined NVIDIA. I joined probably three weeks before the initial product launch. You know, the vision, you know, and part of what attracted me to NVIDIA was the vision was very similar, which was you know, we didn't want to build a server. We wanted to build the best AI system for uh, users at the time. And, you know, back five years ago, really nobody knew what dedicated AI infrastructure was. You know, you had a lot of people experimenting, you had a lot of folks in research. Uh, and one of the things that, you know, we noticed internally at NVIDIA is even our own experts in the space, you know, everyone had something different underneath their desk, you know, they were trying different things. Um, you know, and Jensen's vision was very straightforward is there's one thing that is the absolute best to do AI work. And I want to build that and I want to show the market that so that everyone can learn from it and we can expand the overall AI ecosystem. And how did you end up at, at NVIDIA? How did that transition happen? Uh, it was through uh, mutual friends and colleagues, uh, some of which were already at NVIDIA, and they said, "You know, hey, we're we're doing something new here." You know, NVIDIA had always been known, you know, as a fabulous technology company, uh, but more of a chip company at the time. You know, you know, we sold data center infrastructure, but it was, you know, chips and boards to OEMs and on the you know the gaming side, of course, through our AIC partners. But as we wanted to bring new technology to the market in a rate that was potentially faster than you know traditional system builders were comfortable doing those things we said you know if we're going to tell the market that ai is real and that you should invest in it now we need to show them how to do that we need to teach them how to build a world class ai system and at the time nvidia was just announcing uh, its new pascal generation of gpus which had a lot of never before seen technology. It was the first time you saw NVLink, a private interconnect that linked all these different uh, GPUs together. And there was also a new form factor. You know, Of course, everyone is familiar with the PCI form factor. You put those cards in the system. Uh, but in order to get the power, the NVLink, to connect all the cards together, it was actually a different physical form factor. It's what we call SXM. Um, it's a rectangular module. You've seen all the pictures of it. But that form factor needed a new system to be built around it. You couldn't plug it into a standard PCI server. So we had to teach the world how to build this new form of server that combined the fastest GPUs with this new NVLink technology. And, and that's what became the DGX1 product. And was that was that what drew you to NVIDIA, um, an interesting product you wanted to get involved in? Yeah, it's a combination of a lot of things, you know, interesting product, interesting space, um, also a great team. You know, that's, you know, as as anyone, you know, would, would tell you after you've been you know, in a career for a while, you know, the team is as, as important as the work that you're doing. Uh, and, you know, NVIDIA just had a great engineering culture, a great uh, innovative culture. You know, I've looked for that in you know, all the companies that I've I've worked with. And, you know, the team was great there. I, you know, I, I talked to them about, you know, what they were doing, why they were doing it. And. And 
you know, it was, it just felt like a natural fit. You know, as I said, I, you know, I had some friends that were working there, you know, some of them had been working there for a few months before I got there. Some, you know, had been there for a few years and, you know, all of them said, you know, this is a great place to work. If you're used to X company back in this, you know, point in time, you know, they're very much, you know, like other places that, that I had worked that really had that spirit of just everyone working together for a common goal to get something done and to do something that hadn't been done before. And that's, you know, kind of one of Jensen's mandates to all of us is if we're going to invest time in doing something, it has to be both hard and it has to be something that only we can uniquely do. And it also has to be fun to work on, um, you know, and you, you meet those three tests for a product and uh, you know, it's a great opportunity. And, you know, I, I started as an army of one, but quickly hired a lot of great folks that, that I knew through the industry and that I'd worked for before. And, you know, fast forward five years, we're on our third generation product uh, and have a great team behind it. And there's a lot of, a lot of attention being paid to AI, obviously. It's a world-changing technology. There's a lot of optimism and a lot of concerns about its implications. And the, the basic question is, how do we make sure it's not built early on in ways that will cause irreparable harm to society? Um, how do we make sure it's not putting minorities at a disadvantage? Or how do we prevent it from being abused by military? How do we prevent abuse by, you know, abuse of deep fakes, things like that? Um, so as someone who lives in the world of computing infrastructure that enables this technology, do you feel a sense of responsibility for ensuring we don't get it wrong? Or do you sort of not worry about those things because your focus isn't on like, the actual software that trains AI models and makes those uh, potentially consequential decisions? Well, I mean, as a consumer of AI technology, I mean, we, we all interact with AI technology on the consumer level on a daily basis. You know, I you know, I hear those concerns, um, but the, the thing that I find great hope in is all of the developers, the ecosystem partners, everyone that helps make AI a reality, they're all thinking about these things too, you know, or, or trying to take out bias from systems, trying to make sure that AI can really help you, you know, the, the whole goal, um, you know, and you've, you've heard Jensen say it a, a lot of times, but, you know, I, I think it really you know, comes to heart is AI isn't out there to replace people. It's to make people better. It's to help people along um, so that your life can be easier. Your life can be better. You can get better access to information. You know, back when we were all traveling, you know, and you're sitting on a phone call, you know, on hold with an airline because your flights got canceled. Well, if the AI is better, it should just rebook your flights because it knows your travel pattern and everything. And I shouldn't have to sit on the phone with an airline for an hour. So there's a lot of good things in it. You know, th there's a lot of, you know, people out there that will you know point out well it, it has potential to do bad things but the same things have been said you know when the computer industry just started oh you're going to put all these people out of work all these things look at the massive economic gain that has come you know out of just everyone having access to a, a computer system you know so I, you know, I, have, I have high hopes for ai and i think the right people are thinking about the right areas to to help you know, make sure there's bounding boxes around thing to make sure that there's human in the loop when, you know, you're facing critical and difficult decisions. And um, the obligatory chip shortage question, um, how how has the chip shortage been affecting the DGX group, the group you're in charge of? Um, you know, so it, it impacts everyone. You know, I, I, I have to you know, if I had a hat on, I would take my hat off right now to to our NVIDIA operations team. Um, they are, you know, I, I think 
I, not, not, I think I know they're, they're the best that I've ever worked with. So while, you know, there are shortages, obviously we, we build our own GPU. So, you know, I'm not short of those, uh, you know, for, for the very large scale systems, but you know, it's, it's little things. It's like, you know, it's a resistor, it's a, you know, a little transistor somewhere. It's a power module. Uh, but, you know, I think, you know, coming into NVIDIA and understanding how well our operations staff plans, plans years in advance on stuff, uh, they've really been able to protect us, you know, on the things that we can be protected uh, by. So I can say for for DGX supply, uh, while there's a lot of hard work going on behind the scenes to make it all smooth and perfect, uh, we haven't been impacted at all. At the ta- you know at the output end of that, that doesn't mean that we haven't had to do a lot more work. Uh, but the team has been you know excellent at their craft to make sure that we always have second source, we always have alternative components. We've got you know months and months of you know planning behind every build of systems that happen in our factories for these things. Because you know at the end of the day, we're not delivering a part to a customer with DJX. We're delivering a whole solution, a whole system that's got software, it's got you know storage and it's got networking. So we can't be short, you know, one screw in the system. One screw means I can't ship the system to a customer. Uh, so the team just does an excellent job forecasting, planning for that. Um, you know, and it's really great to see that whole process and be part of it to make sure that we can, you know, deliver to our customers what they need. So, so you're saying it hasn't hasn't caused any delays in shipments, but uh, there's been a lot of a lot of worrying and headaches and and hard work behind the scenes to to make sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, our, our goal is to shield our customers from that. They expect a complete product from us. We plan well with them, you know, and and that's, you know, one of the things that I really like about working on this type of product is, you know, even though all of our systems are sold through partners and channels and those things, uh, we have a lot of direct visibility with our customers. So they know what our lead times are. You know, I'm very happy to report you uh, all throughout the, you know, the, chip shortage and coronavirus crisis, you know, we've still, you know, you know, standardized on our lead time and haven't extended that, um, you know, so our customers know, you know, when AI is successful for them, you know, and say they've started out with, a, you know, just a handful of DJX systems, when they come back to me and say, you know, hey, Charlie, I need 40, I need 100, and I need them next quarter, I can still deliver that stuff in, in standard lead time. Okay, let's talk about data centers. You like to say that your data center AI infrastructure product design benefits from NVIDIA engineers using NVIDIA hardware internally. Um, how, yes. how big is that internal AI computing infrastructure at NVIDIA now? Like how many data centers? Oh, how many data uh, centers? How many, uh, I don't know. How, how do you quantify so I, I can, it? How much, yeah, how much power? Quote. <laughs> I can quote you the number of DGXs. We're probably close to 3,000 DGXs deployed internally across the, the range of DGX1, DGX2s, and you know, the, the current system, the DGX A100s. I don't really count the DGX station numbers in there because you know we have those you know, sitting under people's desks and cubes, so they're not in the data center. But you know, in the data center, you know, for the data center infrastructure that we refer to as Saturn V, which is all of the NVIDIA clusters put together, that's around 3,000 systems. Uh, it's in multiple data centers. Uh, I, off the top of my head, I don't know exactly how many. They're they're you know, mostly all around Santa Clara. Uh, I think there's some development that's out, out of state, probably in, in in Nevada at this point. But you know, we're probably you know 
more than five, less than 10 um, data centers. We try to keep uh, a lot of our systems together because you, you get you know, economies of scale, but you also get, um, you know, as you put more and more of these AI systems together in close proximity, you have a lot more flexibility for your users. You know, what one of the things that you know Jensen talked about in the keynote was, you know, these massive new models, whether it's recommender or speech, you know, some of these things that you know would take, you know, hundreds of machines to train, you know, in a, you know, it still take them, you know, two weeks to train even with, you know, a couple hundred DGXs, you need all those systems physically close to each other because you couldn't put those, you know, you know, say 500 systems in, you know, a hundred different data centers, it wouldn't be efficient because all of those systems talk to each other over a local high speed InfiniBand network. So, you know, you want to have centers of gravity around your, your AI system deployments. And you're, you're splitting kind of workloads across multiple systems, right? Right. I mean, you know, that those same 3,000, you know, or so systems, you know, all of those things you know, are accessed by everyone inside of NVIDIA. You know, what, one of the interesting things is just by being an NVIDIA employee, you automatically have access to up to 64 GPUs in the data center. Now, some groups like our self-driving car or language model teams, you know, the, those teams have you know, hundreds of, you know, if not thousands of GPUs. But, you know, that's why we you know, Jensen made the investment many years ago. We started with 125 DGX ones, you know, four plus years ago. And as soon as we turned on that centralized infrastructure, it was instantly full. And so then we kept adding and adding and adding to it because, you know, we found the value of, you know, having a centralized infrastructure means that people don't have to worry about, well, when am I going to get access? You know, how long is it going to take me to do something? If the systems are available, they can get their work done and they can expand and contract as they need it. Um, you know, and we put a lot of work together to make that easy for our internal users. And that same technology, that tooling, that information flow actually makes it into the product so all of our you know, customers outside of NVIDIA can use it. These clusters sit in colocation facilities? Yes. Um, you know, in I can't say NVIDIA owns no data center space because, of course, we run um, you know, our GFN network all over the world for gaming. But for uh, you know, our DGX systems, outside of the ones that are in labs in NVIDIA buildings, you know, all the large clusters are in co-location because you know, that's not you – know, while we have strict design specifications and we push our co-location partners to the art of the possible you know, and push the limits on power and cooling, um, you know, it's, it's not our – core business to build data centers. You know, we let the experts build that and we give them all of our requirements uh, to push not only for what they're building today, but what they're building, you know, in years to come. Is NVIDIA the world's largest user of uh, DGX? No, no, it's not. Uh, I, I have uh, customers that have larger deployments than uh, than we do. Okay. Can you share how many or who they are or anything about them? I, I, I can't. Uh, unfortunately, that's that's the power of when you have very large customers that, you know, you, you can search through some public stuff on you know some large customers that we've announced over the years. But uh, there, there are a handful of customers that do have more uh, internally than we do. So so this this uh, internal cluster, uh, you, when you guys what well, the, the first internal cluster you mentioned, uh, there were 125 DJX computers. Um, about five years ago, you deployed it. Um, how did that project come about? Why um, why did you guys decide to do that? So that you know, that that was really you know based on you know a, a, an early Jensen meeting about you know 
how do we get our own internal users something better? Because as you know, he looked across the company, and, and I can take no credit for this. Uh, I just helped implement it. You know, there were all these requests for a workstation here, a server there. You know, from all different parts of the company that was trying to do something with AI, and we knew we wanted to centralize things. Uh, but you know, all of us that have been in the IT industry for a long time, you know, going from when people own systems, you know, this is my system, it sits underneath my desk or it's in this one rack space, this is mine, to go from that to something that is a centralized shared resource, you know, every IT organization struggles with that. How do you do that? How do you get your users to move? How do you motivate them to move? Um, you know, so that you can decommission, you know, the the ineffective, you know, barely use systems that they do have. And so we, we just made a very simple proclamation, uh, you know, backed up by Jensen's investment. It is, we're going to give you, you know, to all of our users you know, in the company, we're going to give you something that is so much better than what you have access to today in your lab or under your desk, that there's no reason you want to keep doing it the old way. It's gonna be no uh, and like I said, you know, it once we turned it on, you know, I think it was turned on on something like, you know, a Thursday or a Friday and people started to know about it by Monday morning when people came in, you know, it was already hundred percent utilized. So then we needed to apply a bunch of software and, you know, other access controls to it because, uh, you know, early on the guy that got in Monday morning and launched a thousand jobs took up most of the cluster. So then we said, okay, you know, it's great. It's getting used. Now we need to make sure that it's used fairly across the company. And that's, you know, we started you know writing software, writing quotas, writing queuing, um, you know, but it's super successful. You know, anyone inside the company, you want to try and experiment, you've got a great idea, can try something, no approval. Like I said, you know, up to 64 GPUs, that's you know, up to eight DGXs. But, you know, for the big stuff that we do, you know, if we say, you know, hey, we could really make a difference on a medical language model and we need, you know, a thousand GPUs to try that on for two weeks, that's something we can do. You know, and that's having that type of infrastructure really unlocks the imagination of the data scientists we have, the researchers we have um, to push the limits of what's possible. And that's what you see us, you know, not only did we have some hardware announcements at GTC, but most of Jensen's announcements were actually software based. And that's because we can do that work and we have the infrastructure. And, you know, what I've experienced over the past number of years is a lot of our customer base doing the same thing. They're going from disparate infrastructure. One group gets to buy, you know, a DJX here, another group gets two there to saying, you know what, I just want to buy, you know, what we call a super pod that starts with, you know, 20 nodes and up. And I'm just going to use this as a centralized resource for my company. And when I need more, I just add to it. I don't need to, you know, go give Bob two more or Lisa two more. Just, okay, if the company needs four more, just put them in our cluster. And that's the great thing about the designs that we've come up with. It just scales linearly. Need more systems? We've got a roadmap, you know, that goes from two systems to thousands of systems, um, you know, all in a standardized data center deployment. And, and you're now at several thousand DGXs being used internally. Um, what are some of the biggest lessons have you guys learned about running and using AI hardware? at scale in data centers over the last five years? A, a lot of it has been around software development to make it easy to run very large scale AI jobs. You know, if you're running on a single GPU, even a single system, you don't, you know, 
there's really no software work to do. You you know you run your PyTorch, you run your TensorFlow, you know whatever framework you're going to use, and you're done. There's nothing that needs to happen. But when you start doing what we call multi-node training, you know scaling that training across you know lots of systems, you know two, four, hundreds, you know of, of systems, there's things that you need to learn in the way you launch those jobs, monitor those jobs. What happens, you know, if you're doing a two-week training run and one system out of your, you know, hundred system cluster goes down. So, you know, a, a lot of our enhancements to software uh, that we release to customers through our NGC repository, uh, you know, we've taken all of our own internal lessons learned on how to optimize those things and just how to operate those, you know. A lot of what we deliver is knowledge, not even just software. You know, we we help teach our customers. Okay, you know, if you're going to try to run thousands of systems and you need to run a job that's going to run for an hour on those thousand systems, well, that's that's a fairly it, you know, while it's a big system, it's a fairly simple thing. You don't need to think about a lot of things. But you know, for like you know automotive uh, training, they may have jobs that run over hundreds of systems that last for three weeks. Now, you don't want one node in that system on your third week to destroy your entire training run. So there's things like checkpointing, um, you know, there's you know, saving various things, saving various states. So, you know, as you're running very long term jobs, you know, just like, you know, the standard statistics, you know, averages, you know, after so many you know, days, weeks or months, you know, you're going to have a system hiccup when you're running hundreds or thousands of systems. So we do a lot of work to help provide the software, the settings, the tools, so that customers can feel safe running very long running jobs over you know, hundreds of systems without worrying about you know, a single failure in the cluster is going to take out you know, your three weeks of work. That's an interesting interesting point because you know, kind of the traditional thinking uh, in the HPC world, which I know is different from the AI world, but it's you know, very closely related, uh, is you know, that infrastructure isn't as mission critical as say a bank's data center and so you know you don't need to you know, build uh, as much redundancy on the data center side of things um, but uh, what you're saying is well if you're if you have a, a long-running training job that's very mission critical and that cannot nothing can fail there or your whole that whole run is screwed yeah and the the, the high availability is different because you know i mean a lot of people come from an enterprise background. Obviously, I was at Oracle. You know, your average database transaction, you know, is sub-second. So if you have a system failure and you know you've got a you know a failover and you have to retry a couple transactions that were sub-second, no big deal. You know, you didn't lose anything. But you know, if you're looking for a singular answer at the end of multi-weeks, you need to build some redundancy in the software layer so that things can retry, reset, you know, and those are the knobs that we help teach our customers to set right to say, you know, what's your risk exposure? You know, how often do you want to basically recollect all your data and say, I'm going to checkpoint here? You know, some people checkpoint once a day because it's, you know, it's fine for them if they lose, you know, work, they can, you know, if they rerun a day's worth of work on a node, it's, it's not that big of a deal. Some customers checkpoint something every hour, uh, and it's really up to you know their their risk profile and how much they think it's going to impact the overall run. Of course, if you're you know running on you know hundreds of systems and you lose one hour's worth of data on one system, you know your overall training time isn't going to go up that much. But if you're running hundreds of systems and you lose an entire twenty four hours, well, that's a that's a bigger impact. Yeah. Uh, and so that's you know 
why having that close relationship with our customers that, you know, as, as being a DJX customer, you know, I, I tell everyone you're part of the family. Now you're part of my family and, you know, you can call us up and ask, you know, data center questions like what's the optimal way to cool my data center? You know, how do I do hot aisle? What do you recommend? You know, all the way through to, you know, what's the right way to run, you know, a PyTorch job on 200 DGXs for a massive NLP language model, you know, half of our, you know, like it's not an exact number, but, you know, I, I would venture to say half of our people in our technical SA community, uh, you know, have advanced degrees to PhDs. I was shocked, you know, coming from, you know, Oracle and Sun, where we had excellent technical field people to talking to, you know, the average field person, technical field person at NVIDIA, and they've got, you know, a PhD in, you know, linear algebra or computational, you know, microscopy or, or other things. So it's just a fabulous team with just an immense amount of knowledge. So, you know, hypothetically, I'm an IT or a data center manager at a corporation. Um, some unit in my company wants to start training and deploying AI models. Um, they haven't figured out what infrastructure that they're going to use. Maybe they're going to use cloud or something else. Um, help me understand uh, what's kind of the spectrum of scenarios of how this affects me as an as a data center manager, as an IT manager. Yeah, uh, and, and so that you know, the, there is a broad spectrum of you know how people do AI. Lots of people start in the cloud, and that's you know, Nvidia has you know its you know top end GPUs in every single you know, cloud. And, you know, if you're just trying experimenting things, you don't know what's going to work yet. Um, and it's easy enough for you to get your data into the cloud, you know, that that's definitely a great way to get started. You know, it's a, you know, lower cost entry point in a lot of ways. But what we generally find from customers is as they get serious about, you know, AI training, um, you know, doing those, uh, doing that bit of work that, you know, they want something that's closer to them, closer to their data. Now, th that brings up the, you know, the data gravity question. You know, if a customer comes to me and says, you know, hey, Charlie, I've been an online business since we've you know, started the business and all of my data is in cloud. Well, you should probably do your AI in, in the cloud at that point. Um, but, you know, for the majority of our customers, they have a fair amount of data that they want to use that's you know central to their enterprise it's you know it's in a in a 10 year data store they have it's you know their CRM records for the past 20 years it's you know customer behavior from the last 5 and that's generally somewhere on prem and when i say on prem you know that doesn't mean they own their own data centers lots of them are in colos but it's in a facility that they control the data on um, and so you know we always you know advise people move the ai compute to your data, move it as close as possible because you're going to spend so much time pulling the data into the AI infrastructure to do training, to do inference, that it doesn't make sense to keep moving it back and forth between the cloud and on-prem or, or vice versa. You know, from an IT administrator's perspective, um, you know, one of the, you know, the, the kind of two scenarios that, that come up often as I talk to, um, you know, higher level executives in, in companies, you know, as their users are starting to work in the cloud and train on the cloud, you know, lots of times they'll come back and say, wow, I got my quarterly bill. It was pretty high. I didn't expect that. Um, 
because you know AI has an unlimited appetite for compute. So as an IT administrator, to get ahead of it, if your users are starting out in the cloud, you know, educate them on you know cloud usage. Make sure you know when they're done using something, you know, turn the instance off. Don't just you know if if your job is going to take eight hours and it's going to end at you know five oh six, don't wait till the morning to turn it off because you're you know, you're burning valuable time. Um, and on the on-premise side, you know, one of the things that we've really tried to do with the DGX platform is make it easy for IT. You know, at the end of the day, you know, people look at the systems and they say, wow, you know, this is a, it, it's a big system. It's, you know, six rack units. It's, you know, five to six kilowatts. This is something I'm not used to. At the end of the day, it's a Linux box. You know, I mean, I, you know, positioning, you know, in, in the way people use our systems for delivering a complete solution. But to an IT administrator, it's just a bigger Linux box. We use standard Linux distributions. You know, we do all the software QA on all the additional things that we put above the Linux layer on, um, and we fully support that to the the IT department. But you know, they shouldn't be scared of it. You know, it's w whether they buy the DGX, they buy an OEM server platform using NVIDIA GPUs, it, they can operate it the same way. You know, it's not SMT. And if I'm if I'm the data center uh, manager and and say um, this is being deployed in my on-prem data center, should I be scared of it? because of power densities and you absolutely shouldn't be scared of it no and, and that's just planning um you know and uh you know one of the things that uh, we've talked about and you may have seen some of our material out there is empty is the new green you know when people say oh you know you know one of one of these djx boxes or one of these oem servers is you know five kilowatts and you know i only have 10 kilowatts available in my rack or i have 12 kilowatts or, or seven you know they say oh i've got all this empty space and you know as a long-term data center guy myself you know you look at empty space and you're like oh i'm not using my space well but the amount of acceleration and computation that you get out of these systems replaces so many of your standard x86 pizza boxes that, you know, you think back, you know, four or five years ago, we were making comparisons to, you know, one DGX one replaces, you know, a hundred or a few hundred, you know, Intel pizza box servers. We don't even make those comparisons anymore because the number is into the thousands at this point. So if you're doing AI training, uh, and even AI inference, you're using GPUs, the systems are going to be more powerful, but it's not that, you know, it's a, you know, it's something completely different. It's just, you know, I've consolidated, you know, multiple racks worth of infrastructure into one server. Okay. Yeah. That's that one server takes up more power, but it, you know, with good planning, that doesn't really matter to people as long as you can fit at least one of these systems in a rack. Um, and like I said, that's why we have such great OEM partners as well. You know, we only build one DJX system. It's you know, it's turned up to eleven. It's the best. Uh, you know, our OEM partners do build smaller systems in in cases uh, where people need different density, different power levels. Uh, but you know. Regardless of whether you buy mine or whether you buy an OEM server, you, you sh as an IT person, you absolutely shouldn't be scared of this. You know, if you're scared of it, then you, you haven't looked into it enough. And you know, call us. Even like I said, even if you don't buy mine, we'll still give you the advice on what the right way to do it do is. Do you do you run into IT people who are quote unquote scared of it? Um, four years ago, yes. Um, I'm seeing a lot less of that now. I think people understand it well enough. You know, they don't know, you know, does an IT person need to know NVLink Gen 3? No, because they're never going to program it. They're never going to touch it. Their users aren't going to program it and touch it. It's, it's software that we do. You know, 
you know, four or five years ago when we first introduced this box and it had eight Infinibands on it and it was, you know, gold and it you know, weighed a hundred pounds and took three kilowatts and people are like, I've never seen something like this before. But, you know, as you know, AI has become more mainstream and they've looked into it and, you know, it, most IT people are like, yeah, you know, it's, it's running standard Linux. And that's, you know, one of the things, you know, we've done in the product over time. When we first launched the product, you know, we had our, our own OS, which was, you know, Ubuntu plus, you know, a bunch of NVIDIA specific stuff. And that was because, you know, we just wanted a simple experience for all of our end users. And because of a lot of feedback from IT organizations, you know, they said, you know, even though we get it, it's, it's, the best performance. It's everything, you know, NVIDIA's done all the work together, but, you know, we're really a Red Hat shop and we're a one Linux shop, you know, Charlie, how are you going to help us? And, you know, so in year two, we introduced, you know, Red Hat support and that's just as good. Obviously you you have to have a Red Hat license for that, but, you know, that, that's something we've made easy for users. You know, we continue to put out new software, new scripts to make setup and configuration easy. So, you know, after you get past the power issue, a lot of people say, oh, you've got InfiniBand. I don't run InfiniBand in my data center. Well, InfiniBand is just the compute fabric to connect the DGX together. You don't have to manage it at all. It's a physical layer connection. So you know, it, it shouldn't be scary for you. It's just part of the solution. And you know, once people look at that, and like I said, you know, you know, four years ago, three years ago, there was definitely more concern with people. I spent a lot more time explaining this to IT folks. And after you explain it to them one-on-one, -on -one, they're like, oh yeah, I get it. It's not, you know, it's not that difficult. Um, and, you know, a lot of it is because we've, you know, published papers, published information on how we do it. And, you know, we do it with very few IT staff. You know, we don't have a massive IT organization running those 3000 systems, you know, it, in, in for the amount of compute power those things put out, to the amount of IT staff that's needed. So how, how big is low. that organization? You know, I don't know off the top of my head, but it's it's smaller than you would expect for an organization running thousands of you know, high-end servers. Because at the end of the day, they're all the same, you know, and that that's what really helps our customers, you know, with our design is that every single DGX that I've ever shipped out of the factory. I have hundreds, if not thousands, of those exact same systems at the exact same software level running internally. So, you know, as an IT administrator, you know the the number one thing you know, that that caused me pain in the past, and I'm sure you know causes my brother and pain today, is when you've got lots of servers that are different. You know, fundamentally different. Like I can't use the same SBIOS. I can't use the same BMC settings on these because some application wants something different. Every single DGX we we ship is exactly the same, can be updated the same. So, you know, to operate them, you know, it, if you take a very big picture view, it's an IT administrator's dream. It's a completely homogenous system. Now, you know, users and applications on top of that, you know, we we all all deal with those things. But from basic IT, it's it's actually fairly simple to update, and we put a ton of engineering into making the system easy to update. You know, we publish a single package that updates absolutely everything on the system, all the firmware, the SBIOS, all the settings that you need. So, you know, you're not sitting there like, oh, I've got to run this patch, this other patch. Do I need this patch? It's just one update container we give you, you know, a few times a year and mm -hmm. it just goes. And, and let's it. talk about the future a little bit. Companies have been able to get away, as, as you mentioned, with hosting AI, AI hardware in the data centers they have without, or in Colos, without adding fancy things like liquid cooling by basically just spreading the hardware um, across the data center floor, if they have enough data center floor. 
Do you see a point in the future when that will no longer be an option and the hardware will use so much power that it will have to be liquid-cooled no matter, no matter how much data center space you have available to you? So for the foreseeable future, I believe we'll always have an air option. Um, there will be some designs that will be more optimal for, for liquid cooling, uh, but that's you know part of you know my job, the team's job, is to give customers the right type of designs for where the market is. And so, you know, right now we don't sell any liquid cooled designs. And in, in the future, I definitely uh, see that. And you know, but it doesn't mean you have to go back to the old you know mainframe days i can tell you the you know, the very first data center you know back in the you know, mid 90s that uh, i was retrofitting to do you know hosting when we pulled up floor tiles there were a ton of liquid pipes in there cuz it used to be an old mainframe data center uh, and then the world kind of moved away from that because that was a very complicated infrastructure but liquid cooling has come a long way and so i think in the future people will have a lot of viable options whether you just want to do air only uh, mixed air and liquid or facility liquid. So, you know, I, I see things coming forward where you can have a very high powered server going to a local liquid loop heat exchanger somewhere else in your data center uh, without needing to retrofit your entire data center for facility water. Uh, I would you know, advise most customers if you, you know, if you were building your own facility moving forward and you're not going to go colo, you should at least have a plan for some liquid, whether you're using our stuff or not. You know, I think you know that is going to be a way to get greater efficiency in your cooling. Uh, but it, it is a fairly big uplift uh, if it's the first time you're doing it, or if you're trying to retrofit something, it's a big uplift. If you're planning it in from day one, it's not actually that expensive. Well, to do well, it. words of wisdom from Charlie Boyle, guys. If you're building a data center <laughs> today, make sure make sure it can do liquid cooling. Yeah, and that doesn't necessarily mean you've got to run all that infrastructure right now. But you know, like like I said, we, you know, we've got a great set of co-location partners around the world. We've been working with them for years now. You know, I think almost all of them will have some liquid cooling capabilities in the future. Uh, but uh, you know, in a lot of cases, it's in a plan. Meaning, when I need it, I put the chillers here. I put the pipes there. I don't need to rip up everything. So even you know, as an end user, if you were building you know your next you know large corporate data center, you know, have a plan that you can accommodate space for that, that type of equipment. Doesn't mean that you know you've got to spend the capital infrastructure to do it today. But you'd feel bad in you know three years and your data center is half full and you realize you need liquid cooling, you got to rip up a, a bunch of stuff. Uh, it's it's probably better to start that planning. And there's lots of experts across the industry. Um, if you're thinking about you know putting in liquid cooling or partial liquid cooling, because for a lot of customers they probably won't need to have liquid cooling everywhere in their data center because the world's not going to be there for a very long time, but you'll need pockets of it in places. Uh, so figure out a plan you know, in, in your own mind of, okay, I'm going to dedicate this corner of my data center because that's closest to the wall to do liquid-cooled infrastructure. And it's, it's common sense things like and, that. And that's one of the reasons I feel like Colo is really the natural choice for all this stuff. You know, They give you the, the quality infrastructure. You don't have to manage um, in most cases, um, you know, they ensure you have expansion headroom. Um, they have lots of locations. It's yeah. got, that's all that is built into their business model. Um, do you think, um, Charlie, do you think co-location facilities will be the primary way enterprises will house their AI infrastructure in the future for all those reasons? You know, I, I would 
think so in a lot uh, in a lot of ways. I mean, j- just like you know our, our own journey at Nvidia. I mean, you know, we're doing very well as a company. We have the capital. We could build our own data centers, but we go to Colo. Why do we do that? Because it's their core business to do these things. Now we do push them and we give them, you know, requirements and, you know, really high power targets because we want to push limits, but, you know, they are the experts in this. And, you know, we, we work hand in hand with our partners so that, you know, they understand where we are today and targets where we may be in a few years. So they're not scared of that. They can plan for those things. You know, I, I think a lot of folks have, you know, if you've got a corporate data center today, you know, you should always think about, what do I need physically close to me? You know, like I said, you know, a number of our DGX systems are actually right around our, our our headquarters inside of Santa Clara, but then we have other stuff that's further away. And the stuff that's further away is stuff that we just know we never have to physically touch that often. Um, you know, so as a corporate user, you should always look at, you know, what are the things that IT needs to touch a bunch, keep that close? Um, what are the things that I need great performance and resilience and all the great things that Colos bring me that I need to be able to drive to. Uh, and what are the things that I should cost optimize to say, you know, this is, you know, tried and true technology. I don't mind if it's a state away or two states away or three states away because I don't need to touch it that often. And the co-location provider has fabulous services. You know, if I'm ever in a state that I do need someone to physically touch the box, you know, that's standard in Colo today, you know, and you don't have to ask for those services extra. That's usually built into your contracts. Okay. That's all I have. Charlie, this has been great. Thank you so much. No, thanks so much for having me. And for everyone listening, thanks for tuning into this with me.